one of the things that I remember when I first uh, started uh, doing training in corporations on my own was walking into a place where uh, there were about 20 executives and there were only three women in there and only one woman looked like me. And I remember walking in and before even opening up my mouth, all three women were clapping for me. And I remember when I walked out, the one woman who looked like me walked out and she said, oh my goodness, thank you so much for showing up, looking the way that you do, right? Because I walked in there with my pajon, with my, <laughs> with my curly hair. I remember people telling me, nobody's ever gonna hire you, you know, looking like that. I remember this woman said to me, you are the first woman that they bring in here first who looks like you and secondly who comes in with your hair looking like that when we have policies in place where we can't wear our hair natural she said you broke all types of standards you know with this and she said you literally empowered me mi gente dímelo what up what up what up welcome to another episode of the quien tu eres podcast brought to you by plural I'm your host, you already know. My name is Pavel Martinez. This week on the podcast, we have Angelica Ogando, AKA the People Whisperer. Angie is an Afro-Latina born in the Dominican Republic and a proud product of Newark, Brick City, New Jersey. She's on a mission to help people embrace their power and step into purpose. These days, Angie has her hands in a few different businesses, which are all centered around her passion. They're all about helping Latinas and women of color who are in a point of transition create a new story of success. One example is that Angie is the proud co-founder of Yoshida Academy, where in the academy, they help individuals become excellent leaders and storytellers. Her newest venture is being a co-founder of Warrior Queen Cosmetics, which she started with her twin sister, Maria. She was inspired by the stories of women heroes who are powerhouses and trailblazers in their own right. With that said, really excited to share this episode. Let's get into it. All right, so I always start the podcast with the same question. I ask everyone. So when people tell you to be your authentic self or when you hear the word authenticity, what comes to mind for you? What does that mean? Oh, I love that question. So for me, authenticity means being exactly who I was called to be. It's uh, bringing my full self. Uh, one of the things that I say about being my full self is that I'm actually funny, which people don't get to see that part of me. They always see the serious business side of me, but I'm actually really funny. At least I think that I am. <laughs> and, I, and I talk a lot about my personal experience. Being authentic is being open and transparent and being able to share your experiences with people so that you can connect. I'm a, I am a big time networker. I am into building rapport. And the only way that I can really build rapport with people is by being able to share my experiences and seeing that there is synergy in what I've gone through with what people have gone through. I, I love that your, your answer and your mind automatically went to things that aren't necessarily appearance-based because a lot of times that's where people's minds go. Obviously it has a factor into it, but you know, you went into just like your personality and who you are and things that aren't necessarily surface level. That's so interesting. Um, 
you know, when do you feel most comfortable being yourself and sharing your experiences and, and doing all of those things? Is it consistent across the board or, you know, are there certain situations? <laughs> uh, oh, that's such a good <laughs> question, Pavel. So <laughs> when do I feel most comfortable? You know, for, for a long time, I thought that I felt most comfortable amongst other Latinas or other Latinos. And then I realized that's not where I am most comfortable being myself. So to be honest, I'm most comfortable in spaces where most people wouldn't really find me in or think that I would fit in because I have the opportunity to teach people about my culture, about who I am, about um, Latinidad. And so for me, that's where I feel most comfortable when it comes to my, when it comes to other Latinos and stuff like that, como que me siento that there's a lot of, let me one-up you on what I'm doing or what I'm saying on what's going on in my life and, uh, and who's the better Latino. And I don't like that. And so for me, I tend to, when it comes to those situations, I tend to fall back a little just so that I could observe and then I, then I can say, okay, this is where I'm going to come in. This is where I'm going to contribute in the conversation. That's so interesting. I, I've heard that so many times in different levels. Like I have friends that don't, like they say they don't feel Dominican enough, right? Because, you know, their Spanish is decent, but they go into certain situations with like other Latinos and Latinas and they're like, oh, fuck, comparing themselves to that. Right. The thing is that we tend to criticize one another way too much in our culture. And so when you say I'm not Dominican enough, oh my God. Cuanta vez yo he escuchado eso? Like, especially when people feel that they don't manage the language well, just because you don't speak Spanish well, doesn't mean that it discredits the fact that you are Dominican or of Dominican heritage, of whatever Latino heritage that you are from. What it says is that you just need to work on your Spanish, but it's not the person who speaks the best Spanish that is able to build rapport or communicate well with others is the one that really understands and can bring their authentic self like you started off with to the conversation. Yeah, no, 100%. And, I, and I'm so interested to, to, to uncover, like, where did this all start for you, right? Like, maybe, maybe we can start around like where you grew up and like what that experience was like, because you, you know, you mentioned you know, I feel most comfortable around like a certain group and not necessarily like around other Latinos or Latinas. Like, was that always the case? Maybe when you were growing up? Um, no. So I came to the United States when I was six years old from Dominican Republic. So I was born in Santo Domingo and I came here when I was six uh, with my twin sister. We are the youngest of six girls, by the way. So there are six women and we were that, oops, we didn't know we could still have kids. And so <laughs> we, we literally grew up with our nieces and nephews. And so when I came here to the US, what, uh, what happened was that I was, we first moved to Newark, New Jersey. So in New Jersey, Hey. Hey. And so we, we moved to Newark and we were in a Latino environment, but we were only there for about four years. And then we ended up moving to a town called East Orange. And East Orange is a predominantly African-American town. And so I had a really tough time. We were there until about seventh grade. I had a really tough time uh, in East Orange. And it's because, first of all, Spanish was my first language, even though now I dominate English 
English just as well as I do Spanish because I'm fluent in both. But it was tough because we were Latinas and we were the first Latinas in the area. Being able to identify with them and connect with them was tough because we weren't Black enough to be considered Black or part of the group, right? And when we were in Newark, when we just, when we first came here, we were also like the darkest ones in our class and we weren't uh, white enough to be Latinos, what the Latinos look like when we were growing up in that area. And so for a very long time, I suffered from the imposter syndrome, believe it or not. Uh, my sister and I, we suffered from the imposter syndrome because we didn't know where we fit in. We, we just didn't know where we fit in. And so we, we found ourselves, especially me, I found myself being more chameleon-like and trying to adopt, you know, the mannerisms, uh, even the language of the place that I was in so that I can fit in. But no matter how hard I tried, I just didn't fit in. It just, di it just didn't happen. People weren't accepting us. And it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't until years later, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't until maybe six years ago that I decided I'm just going to be me and it doesn't matter what, what my surroundings look like, who I'm around, uh, what other people think of me. You know, for a very long time, I wear my hair natural. So now we're going to go into the, uh, <laughs> into the superficial part of it. I wear my hair natural now. For a very long time, I didn't. Desde chiquita, my mom would perm my hair you know, to straighten my hair because curly hair wasn't considered professional or the standard of beauty. The standard of beauty was a more European look, which was, you know, the straightening of the hair and um, just speaking a certain way so that I would be more acceptable because my language could tend to be a little colloquial. And so um, I, had to, I had to work on that as well. And I said, a mí qué me importa lo que diga la gente? Like, what do I care? And to be honest, the, the transition of when I started to accept myself and be, be authentic uh, and be me was after I got divorced, to be honest. Because even when I think about it, even in that marriage, there were certain expectations that were placed over me. I literally went from having nothing to having it all and being... Um, being in a place where you know i was financially independent we were you, we were doing extremely well but in order to maintain la apariencia right so that yeah. i could fit in with everybody else i had to look a certain way i had to dress a certain way i literally was in the salon every three days getting my hair straightened wow i mean and when so, you when you sorry go for it no no, no you could go ahead i'm sorry <laughs> No, I was going to say, you know, you, you spoke a lot about like expectations, you know, where, where do you think those expectations come from? Like, were they, do you think it was like a story you were telling yourself or did you hear certain people tell you that it had to be a certain way? Like your hair, for example, or like this appearance, you know, um, not necessarily Europeans, but more so like the appearance that we put out in the community, right? So, you know what I'm going to tell you? It started since I was little. There was this expectation. It came from my from my own family, especially my mom. You know, for my mom, you know, curly hair, when she sees my hair now, for her, it's like, um, I look like a wet mop to her. Yeah. And this is a 
belief that my mom grew up with, which is, which is sad. You know, we, we have, um, we, so our background, we have Spaniard, right? In, in our background. And so my mom's grandmother, Ere Española, she was from Spain. I know on my father's side as well. And so for, for them, there is this certain sense of pride for some reason that there is this part of you that is connected to Spain and to the European part. And for some reason, they want to hold on to that and the standards that came with that. And so it was, it was put on us. It was placed on us, those expectations, which are so erroneous. They're so wrong because what ends up happening is that it created a lot of limiting beliefs inside of me you know my sister is a little lighter than me and i always heard that my sister was prettier than me more beautiful than me my sister has wavy hair you know i have super curly 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 um almost kinky hair and so my sister was always considered more prettier than me and so all of these standards of beauty that were placed on me literally created limiting beliefs because it started i started to compare myself to other people which was wrong and it was not good. And so I was in this hamster wheel of, oh my gosh, I have to look a certain way. I have to do certain things. I have to say certain things because people don't think that I fit the standard of beauty. And so it was tough, it was challenging. And, and that's something that we repeat. I'm not the only person. I see it with my girlfriends who are Latina, especially Afro-Latina. And so mm -hmm. it's something that we grew up with in our families. Yeah, it's not just you at all, for sure. I definitely want to recognize that because that's something that I hear all the time as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a woman, obviously, um, but uh, my mom tells me, it, it, for, for like a guy, like I remember my grandfather growing up would tell me, do you, CEOs, do you see CEOs with tattoos? Do you see them with beards? I remember there was one point, like, you know, I'm still into hip hop and I was, you know, into it back then. And at a young age, like we're so malleable. Uh, so, you know, I saw 50 Cent with a do-rag walking outside. I'm like, I want to wear a do-rag outside. My grandfather was like, do you see anybody do that? No, right? So, like, he, he like, instilled this um, image or just, like, this idea around what professionalism is. And just like you, I think, for me, it was, like, really shaped at an early age. Yeah, but my whole thing is, who says that listening to hip-hop isn't professional? Mm, like, exactly. who says that? Who exactly. created that? I want to understand who created that? Who says that? We create our own beliefs, right? And our own expectations. The problem is that we take on beliefs and expectations of others. And so we place that on ourselves, which is the wrong thing to do. Because one of the things that I learned is, you know, like putting an invisible shield around me and saying, hold on a second. I'm not a receptacle, not a trash receptacle. I'm not gonna take on all of your garbage, right? Cause I have enough going on in my life and I have enough limiting beliefs that I have to already get rid of, but I'm not gonna take on yours. The problem is that because we are so malleable when we are young, that we accept these things to be truth, right? And we hold on to it and we put it on like a cape, right? And that becomes like our superpower cape of negative beliefs what everybody else has placed on top of us. Yeah. And, it, and it's so interesting, you know, you mentioned that you were, you were experiencing that and it took you, you know, years to get to a point where you were just like, fuck it, I'm gonna be myself. 
mm-hmm. it was interesting. You mentioned mentioned marriage and, and your divorce, and that was like the moment for you. Did yeah. it have to, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and, and why? Sure. So what happened was that I was at a point of transition. I ended up um, getting divorced uh, just because things weren't working out. Um, so as a woman, you have to know, it's so funny because I was saying this the other day um, to a client where I was telling them, you have to know when to walk away. And when you have overstayed your welcome, whether it's in business and a job that you are not moving in or in a relationship. And I was literally in a relationship where I realized that, you know, um, my worth and my value just was not being respected. And also, my integrity and I had to make a decision to walk away and to walk away not only from the marriage itself but also from everything that we had built together because I went from not having anything to having it all and then making a decision like hey this isn't working out for me I need to walk away from this and people saying oh my god you're crazy you know you're a millionaire how are you gonna walk away from this and I said no the thing is when you know you know who you are and whose you are right because I'm a woman of faith and I say when you know who whose you are and you know that you are worthy and that you are valuable and somebody is not seeing that then it's time to cut the cord and it's time to walk away and I was in a point of transition where I didn't know I didn't quite know who I was because for a very long time Pavel I thought that my identity was connected to my marriage. Yeah. I literally had lost myself. And we tend to do that a lot in relationships. And to be honest, um, I had acquired all this knowledge and skill sets and, and I had gone back to school, gotten an MBA. I had multiple certifications. And I remember the day that I walked away, I thought I had nothing. I didn't, when you are in a place where mentally you uh you feel like you're not worthy you're not good enough you will convince yourself of a lie and the lie is that you don't have anything and that you you aren't valuable and that you don't have any skill sets and it's a lie i had like this cadre of um of certifications and an mba and a bachelor's and i didn't know what my next was gonna be I didn't know what to do. That's how, that's how bad. And that's how bad I was mentally. And it was a lie because I had a lot. I had a lot and I had a lot to give. And it literally took going to therapy and getting coaching, which I know is taboo in our culture to even talk about it. No, la persona que va, you know, (laughs) therapy or who gets coaching is because you're crazy. That's Mm -hmm. true. I needed help. And I remember getting up one day feeling so bad with myself because I thought I was a failure. You know, I, I failed in my head. I failed in my marriage. I had also failed at a startup that I had launched a tech startup that I lost um, a quarter of a million dollars in. I felt like a complete failure. And I remember saying, I need help. I need help because I don't know what's my next? I don't know how to move on from this. And I remember saying, I'm going to go get a therapist. And I did. I'm going to go get a coach. And I did. I love that you did that. Um, 
it's so interesting. And I, I agree the fact that, you know, it happens in relationships a lot, but I think it happens in so many other parts of our lives where like our identities essentially are titles. And I, I think it comes back to maybe like the questions that we're accustomed to being asked. Right. It's like, uh, you know, around a holiday season, it's uh, el novio season. Right. Or like uh-huh. <laughs> y la novia season. Right. Because that you just yep. get asked that at every holiday. Uh, I don't know if you get this too, but in New York in particular, it's uh, the question I guess asked all the time. Uh, and maybe because it's just like there's a lot of money in New York, but it's like, what do you do? Oh, my goodness. That's every time. Yeah. And I, I would get it. Did It took me until I got to Facebook. Mm-hmm. Because before Facebook, I, w- I worked for, I mean, I thought they were good companies, but like no one knew who they were. You know what I mean? They were like tech companies, but they were really small. So right. like I used to hate when people asked me that. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started working at Facebook when I was like, oh, I can't wait for somebody to ask me that. But now I feel like I am stuck in a way because I feel like I can never leave Facebook because I'm so insecure that if someone asked me that and I don't have that like title, that title, right? And I say, I'm an entrepreneur. People are going to have this judgment on me. You know what I mean? And like, I want to get into that later for you, for sure. I um, love that you said that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You went, through, you went through that too? Oh my goodness. Listen. Let's just get into it now. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're just going to jump into this right now. Yes. I experienced that because like I told you, I was in a very successful, mm-hmm. um, in a successful place. Uh, and and this marriage afforded me opportunities in different spaces where I literally was out there. My name was known. His name was known. And so leaving that whole space, people were like, oh, but you're not there anymore. You're not doing X anymore. It's like I lost my value and my worth because I wasn't attached to this thing, right? To this business, to this marriage. So it happens in every space in every space. You are absolutely correct. The question that you have to ask yourself is, why do you care? Why are you so invested in a title? Who you are has nothing to do with who you're with, with what company you work for, with um, uh, if you have kids or not, or a girlfriend or a husband. You know, It has everything to do with who you believe you were meant to be, right? If you are living with purpose, si tu carácter is somebody of integrity, of morals, right? Who you are can never be connected. And this is something that I learned in my my point of transition when I was going through therapy and going through coaching. You know, I had to learn that who I was had nothing to do with my past or anything that I had done or any titles that I had acquired or any company that I was associated with. Who I am doesn't change. In essence, who you are, Pavel, never changes, right? If a relationship ceases to exist, you don't stop being you. If you are no longer in Facebook, Pavel, you don't stop being you. If you are no longer attached to a cause that you don't believe in, you don't stop being you. You don't. I No, I appreciate that. And it's something I have to tell myself all the time. I mean, granted, I like where I work. I like my job. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a thought that comes to mind. And 
for transparency, I, I go to therapy as well. I go to therapy every week. Actually, my therapist has been on maternity leave. I cannot wait for her to get back. <laughs> I, I got a lot to talk to her about. Uh, shout out to my girl, Jody. But um, yeah, like I, I, learned, I learned a ton in therapy. I think my biggest thing was that I didn't know how to communicate my emotions to people. Uh-huh. That was my biggest um, challenge as well as just dealing dealing with anxiety, right? Like all these stories that I create in my head, which many times isn't true. Um, what about for you? Like what what was that growth like or like what what were what were some lessons that you learned? So one of the things that I learned is to be tough. I grew up in in a family where we were six girls, but um so my parents have been, so I'm just going to put this out there. My parents have been married 60 years. We just celebrated the 60 years, but I grew up with parents who grew up in the era of Trujillo. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they grew up with a lot of lack. They grew up with a lot of fear. They grew up with a lot of stuff. So one of the things that they taught us, uh, as women was to be very self-sufficient and to be independent, but also not to cry, not to whine, right? Because we haven't been through what they went through in the era of Trujillo. I don't know why they love to repeat that. It's like, oh my gosh, you're complaining and you're crying about something, but you have no idea what we went through. So it was like, suck it up, buttercup, and you know, put your, put your big girl panties on and don't show emotion. You got to work through it. And so I think that's one of the things that uh, people who see me and people who know me, it, it was tough for me to even cry or to share my emotions or what I was going through because I am notorious for being super private about my life and about how I feel. And so for a very long time, I used to pretend and put this picture like everything was perfect. Everything was great. And it wasn't true. And I, just like you, I had to learn to get rid of and talk about what was going on and about my emotions because it was making me sick. Do you know that holding on to emotions, trapped emotions will cause dis-ease? It will produce Mm -hmm. diseases inside of you. And I tell you this because I studied metamedicine through my certification process as a coach. It's one of the things that I studied. And, And what metamedicine says is that the If you are experiencing something in your body, there is an emotion that's connected to it, that's connected to a traumatic experience or something that you're going through. There is a root in that. And so for a very long time, I was suffering from so many stress-related disorders. And so that's one of the reasons that I went to get, you know, therapy because my doctor was like, you're suffering from all these things. And clearly I could tell you're under extreme duress. You need to go to therapy. You need to go and talk to somebody. The minute I did like this, things just started to disappear. Letting go, talking, things just started to disappear. But it's like I told you before, for some reason, there's this taboo in the Latino community about therapy. There's this stigma with it. And so I want to ask you a question as a man, yeah. Why is it so difficult for men to share, you know, their emotions? Why is it that for a guy, it's not okay? It's expected for a woman to break down and cry, but it's not expected for a guy. And it's seen as, oh my God, you're too weak. Uh, you know, there's like all these different negative connotations with a, with a man sharing it. So I would love to know why. 
Yeah, I kind of, I kind of wish I knew too. But uh, I think growing up, there is. I mean, so thinking about growing up, I like my mom or like, all right, so I grew up with my mom and my two grandparents. So I didn't grow up with my father. Um, they were separated. And uh, I never heard growing up, like, don't cry. You know, as some people say, like, be tough. I never heard that. But I also never saw a lot of emotion growing up. Like I was, I wasn't hugged that often. Like my, my family, their, their love languages, thinking about it, like wasn't physical touch. Um, my grandma actually was the only one out of like my mom and, you know, my two grandparents, she was heavy on the physical touch. And when I think about my love languages, I am quality time and physical touch. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I gravitate so much towards my grandma, because when I see her, it's just like all hugs and all of that. Right. So, but then my mom, I've, I've, I've only seen her cry once my entire life. And I think my mom tried to play both roles as far as like, you know, she was always working, she was always working growing up. So my grandparents really raised me. And by the time she got home, she was like the, you know, disciplinarian and the, just like the, the breadwinner. Right. In a lot of ways she played like this, these traditional male roles. And instead of showing emotion in many ways, my mom uh, went towards comedy. Like literally someone could die. Like her, her father passed away my grandfather and I didn't see her cry during it. And I feel like she was trying to be tough for me. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but her defense mechanism is always comedy. Like it could be the saddest moment in the room, but she would try to make everyone else laugh, maybe to make herself feel better. I'm not too sure, but same thing for my grandfather. Like I've never seen him be emotional. Like I've never seen him cry. I've never seen him uh, just like, even I mean smile yeah like happy emotion I've never seen sad emotion so I think part of it is that but also part of it growing up is like the cool guys growing up whether it be like middle school or high school they were the tough guys like it was cool to be part of a tough neighborhood it was cool to be like uh quote-unquote a thug or being a gang and stuff like that like and those dudes don't cry you know what I mean so I think it's a combination of like family at least for me like family but also like upbringings and like who you're seeing in in your friends groups got it you know I love that you said that you didn't see much hugging in your family so for me it was the opposite but I'll explain why it was the opposite like I said my parents have been married a long time my parents didn't really hug us I, I I've I don't recall being young and my mom and dad really hugging us but my parents were, are extremely loving with one another. They're extremely loving with one another. And the words that they use with one another is, it's literally you're watching like a love story with them. And so oh. I, I know what love should sound like. I know what it should look like between a husband and a wife. But my parents, and, I'm, and I don't know if it's maybe because my parents are so much older. My parents are in their 80s. When they had me and my twin sister, we were the last ones. They were much, much older. And so they were much stricter. And so I don't know if, it, if that plays a part in it as well. So that loving part where you have parents that are telling you that they love you and they're hugging you, I didn't get that part, but I saw it, you know, with them, with each other. And so that's that's what I saw. But with 
them parenting us, it was, they didn't have any boys. They had, they had women. So they had to show us to be strong because it's something that was always, um, said it was like you have to be strong you have to be self-sufficient and so they raised us to be very strong women and so crying no I didn't see that and just like you I I never saw my dad cry my dad is one of those tough people that you know he he doesn't cry my dad doesn't say I love you but he'll write a birthday card that says I love you. yeah yeah so he doesn't say it to us but he writes and and it's how he shows his love. He showed his love in other ways. You know, one of the things, you know, I'm lucky and I say I'm lucky and I'm blessed. My dad taught me how to ride a bike. And so he oh. showed his love that way. You know, so when I think about it, he showed me how to ride a bike. You know, yeah, yeah. he showed me how to drive. You know, he taught me how to drive. So my dad showed love in that way. When I saw my dad cry was to be honest recently he's had a couple siblings passed away but I never saw him cry you know when these particular siblings passed but we just had an uncle who passed um about three months ago and my dad I had to give my dad the news and my dad fell on the floor crying I mean my dad broke down crying and I and I I was shocked because my dad doesn't my dad doesn't cry. He's, he's strong. He doesn't show emotions. And, and I asked like, why was, why did this particular sibling who passed, why did it hurt him most? And it was because he's only two years older than my oldest sister. And he grew up with my dad. My dad had raised him for a part of his life. And so for him, it was like his son had died. And so that's when I saw my dad for the first time break down and cry. And I said, oh my God, my father, my father has emotions because just like your grandfather and your mom, my dad uses comedy a lot for when things are going bad. You know, if something happens as tragic, he uses comedy a lot. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. Like I, I never thought about this, but I, growing up, I, I didn't really see a positive, like loving relationship. Like my mom, my dad was separated. So my mom was um, single. And then my grandparents, you know, they, they lived together, but they're just like this, <laughs> you know, they were this old grumpy uh, couple. Like they were just like always yelling at each other. And I had to be the moderator and saying like, y'all, like, please stop. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure they loved each other, but, you know, there were a lot of things that happened back in the day as well that I'm sure, you know, led to them potentially having a bunch of arguments. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's so interesting. I, I never thought about that. Yeah, I've never, yeah, like growing up, I didn't see like a loving relationship. It's really interesting. I think about wow. it. Wow. And you know what happened? When I, when I left uh, Mr. X and I was going through the divorce. Mr. X. I was really upset with my parents. I was mad at them. Why? I was angry. Because you know what? Growing up and I said this to them. They never had an argument in front of my sisters and I. So I grew up with this expectation of what marriage should look like. And all I had seen was a beautiful, loving relationship where my dad calls my mom his queen. You know, he goes above and beyond, you know, to do everything for my mom. My mom says jump and he'll say how high. And so for me, that's what I 
thought that marriage should look like. And I remember confronting them and saying, you know, you told me and what I saw was that marriage was perfect. It was amazing. You know, you never argue and all this other stuff. And my parents were like, who told you that? <laughs> we never told you that marriage was perfect and that you don't have arguments. And I said, I don't ever recall both of you having an argument in front of us. What we saw was if my mom said no to something, it was no. My father would stick to that. You know, they, they worked in, unis in unison and my parents were like, no, we never said that marriage was perfect. They're like, what well, we made a decision was that we were never going to argue in front of you because what you needed to see was two people that in spite of the issues that come, that we still love and respect one another. We would have our arguments in the bedroom where you <laughs> have to be exposed to that because you don't have to listen to or worry about if we had financial troubles, if him and I weren't seeing eye to eye. And it made total sense to me. It made total sense to me, but I had an issue with something where I still do think that um, children need to see that there are points of contention in a relationship and that you are able to work past the problem because you can't, it's, it's unrealistic to show everything to be perfect. It's unrealistic because what you're creating is unrealistic expectations. Yeah. No, yeah, that uh, that is really interesting. Um, and and I do I do love the fact that you know you went to go seek help as far as therapy for 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 all of the sort of all of the issues not issues but um just experiences that that you went through. Um, yeah. Not only that, but coaching. And it's so interesting because to me, like it really ties into what you're doing now. Like you're yeah. sort of giving that back in so many ways through through so many of your businesses that you're doing and, and through entrepreneurship. Like, talk to me a little bit about you know, why you're running a lot of the coaching and, and, and businesses that you're doing now? Like, did it have, did that previous impact just sort of like helped you through the thought process of like understanding what you're going to do moving forward? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. So at the end of the day, after doing uh, therapy and coaching and trying to figure out what my next was going to be, where I was going to go with my life, what my purpose was, I realized that my purpose was to help women just like myself, uh, who are in a point of transition in their life, because it's a point that I know all too well to find purpose and to step into it confidently and to become warrior queens. And that's what I do. And so I own three businesses. Uh, the first one is called The Enriched Mind. That's where I do my life coaching through. So I do a lot of business coaching and life coaching and I, and I do a lot of keynote speaking. And so um, the Enriched Mind was born out of that to help women, um, especially women who are either in middle level management and are trying to step into executive level roles or are leaving the corporate world altogether and want to become entrepreneurs and they don't know how to do it. I help women in that respect. Then the second company I have is called the Yoshida Academy. And uh, I co-founded this academy with an, an amazing business partner that I have. Her name is Minwe Yoshida. And we found ourselves um, in a place where we both 
were starting our own businesses. I had been an entrepreneur for 17 years previously. I was doing financial services, by the way. I was doing financial services um, in my uh, former company. I was running a lot of the training and development, creating the programs. And I realized, hey, I'm amazing at this. And through, through coaching, what I realized was that I needed to go back and get my certification as a coach because I was already doing it um, in my previous role. And so for me, it was just a natural, a natural transition to move into that. And I said, hey, the only way that I can help women and coach them through this process is by getting certified right? Because um, certification is important. And then creating programs that help women and men, because it's not just for women and men, right? Get their lives together and, and, and start their businesses. And so I met my business partner who was also in the same point that I was. And we realized that there was a lot of similarities in what we were doing. She's a public speaking coach. She also does business coaching. So there was a lot of cross um, crossing over of, of what we were doing in our services. And we said, oh my gosh, why don't we put together an academy and create programs that are helping people, right, to start their own businesses, to become amazing public speakers. And so this is how the academy was born. And so what we do is that we do a lot of training uh, with corporations as well. We do training in diversity and inclusion. It's something that I am big on. I work with women. It's what I eat, breathe, you know, it's, it's just part of me. And so for me, helping women step into executive level roles um, is very important and helping corporations see why it's important to put women in executive level roles. And so we do a lot of diversity and inclusion training that has to do with leadership, that has to do with promoting minorities um, into executive level roles and into management. Um, we also do training around uh, professional development, so skill sets, right? Um, doing a lot of upskilling, communication, in negotiation. And so that's the second company. And the third, which uh, I am so happy to talk to you about, is called Warrior Queen Cosmetics. And this one I co-founded with my twin sister. And basically this cosmetics line is geared towards educating um, educating people about warrior queens, women we consider to be warrior queens that you wouldn't normally be exposed to and that you've never heard of. And it's warrior queens around the world. Everyday women who are literally making it happen in their lives. And so they have had some type of recognition in their particular field. And so we're highlighting them through our makeup, through our cosmetics line. And so we launched that officially in March and we have our pre-launch coming up in January. And so I'm excited about that. That's so cool. I mean, you're, you're creating representation in so many ways. Like the obvious one is you, right? Because you have this brand, but you, in a way, like you're also the brand. And then with the cosmetic brand, I mean, obviously a lot of things, but with the cosmetic brand as well, like you're you're highlighting people within the community that potentially look like you as well. Like how, how important is it to you like to create that representation that is kind of missing? It's extremely important because I'm going to tell you as an Afro Latina, 
One of the things that I have found, um, even in in my speaking engagements, is that usually I'll be I'll be on a panel and I'm the only one who looks like me. Wow. And I'm the only one who um, either speaks Spanish, <laughs> who was born outside of the country, which is the funniest thing, and who has certain experiences, right, that I bring to the table where I'm like, well, there's a group of us who don't know really where we fit in and who don't know how to create a space for ourselves where we are being included. And for me, that's very important, not only as a woman, but as, as a Latina, as an Afro-Latina, that my voice is being heard and that in turn, I'm bringing up other women as well. One of the things that I remember when I first uh, started uh, doing training in corporations on my own was walking into a place where uh, there were about 20 executives and there were only three women in there and only one woman looked like me. And I remember walking in and before even opening up my mouth, all three women were clapping for me. And I remember when I walked out, the one woman who looked like me walked out and she said, oh my goodness, thank you so much for showing up, looking the way that you do, right? Because I walked in there with my pajon, with my, <laughs> with my curly hair. I remember people telling me, nobody's ever going to hire you, you know, looking like that. And I remember this woman said to me, you are the first woman that they bring in here first who looks like you. And secondly, who comes in with your hair looking like that when we have policies in place where we can't wear our hair natural. She said, you broke all types of standards, you know, with this. And she said, you literally empowered me. Listening to that and having another woman say that to me, it, it helps me every day to get up and say, if I can inspire one woman today, then I've lived with purpose. I mean, just, I love that. I mean, shout out to her for, for the acknowledgement too. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, imagine if you didn't show up like that. You know what I mean? Like, imagine if you follow just like the expectation and the standards that, you, you know, we're, we're so accustomed to following. Like that person, I don't know, would have looked at you like, damn, just another one kind of faking it, you know what I mean? Or just like another one that doesn't represent me. That's right, that's right. And so for me, it's very important, Pavel, that wherever I am, whatever it is that I'm doing, that I am representing those women who look like me, who don't have a voice, who don't feel comfortable enough in their own skin to show up authentically them. It's important for me to show up so that they can be inspired to do it for themselves. Because I hear it time and time again. We are in 2020 and we are still having conversations and creating ridiculous laws that allow me to walk into a space looking the way that I do. Well, where is the law? Show me the law that was created that says that I can't look like myself. Like, show me the law, the actual law that was created by the governing body of the U.S. that says this, because this is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure not all of those experiences are positive, right? Like, as an entrepreneur, you can create your own rules, but 
you also, you know, work with corporations. Like, are there certain instances where you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this, right? But not only appearance based, like you mentioned, you know, a big part of who you are is that you're funny, right? Yeah. But like <laughs> showing that, uh, that humor, right? Does, are you like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that because it's unprofessional, right? Like, how do you, do you think about those certain things when you walk into rooms? So it's so funny that you say that because uh, I had an experience recently where literally um, it was for Hispanic Heritage Month and, you know, it, it was for an organization um, that we had to do a, a specific uh, program for and because, you know, um, the White House passed this bill where you can't, it's, it's in diversity and inclusion. We were doing the workshop in diversity and inclusion. They passed this bill that you can't say certain things that uh, for them is considered unpatriotic where you, you can't talk about white privilege. You can't talk about, you know, your experience to the extent where it makes, you know, America look bad. Um, and I remember saying, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can, if I can do this. I said, I don't know. It had me questioning whether or not I could take on this contract because I said, I'm going to bring my authentic self. I am very respectful. So I, I just want to put this out there. I am very respectful that if, um, if a corporation says there are certain things you can't say and certain things you can't do, that I don't do it. But just because you told me I can't say that that's a cat doesn't mean that I can't say, you know, that animal that says meow, that has like little furs and whiskers. And so I find creative ways to still be authentic, but to, uh, to stay true to what I'm doing and what I'm saying and that the message hits home that is still being respectful with the company. Now, if it's just too extreme, I, I won't work with a company just, just to put it out there. And I have been very, very vocal about this. I will tell a corporation, if you're asking me to completely change myself and not bring authentically me, I will, I, I don't mind leaving money on the table because this is the reason why I became an entrepreneur because I wanted to live by my own rules. And if I'm going to say, you know, that I do X, Y, and Z, and I want the next woman to follow me, I want her to know that she should be able to say no to things that aren't aligned to what she, she believes in. Wait, that's crazy. One, I didn't know that about the White House. That new rule. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Let me tell you, you have to look it up. Like they literally passed a memorandum. I'm gonna send you the link. Yeah, they passed a memorandum that literally you there, yeah. So they reduced a lot of diversity and inclusion trainings for a lot of their um for a lot of their agencies, you know, like state governed agencies. And so the the company we were going to do this thing for was a state agency and so oh my goodness so much red tape and i said this is ridiculous that's crazy i did not know that yeah i definitely want to yeah. share that with everyone yeah. uh and and uh oh i forgot what i was gonna say um wait white house there was something oh wait people actually tell you not to say certain things 
Yeah, so we are told, you know, you can't say X, you can't say Y, you can't say Z. And so that- well, gets, Like outside of, outside of like the, the White House situation, you said like other- Other, cor- yeah, other corporations. Yeah, really? Uh, so the diversity and inclusion space is an interesting one. Yeah, because you have to be very careful with what it is that you're saying. And you want to make sure that you're not, um, that you're not offending a whole group of people, but- there are some red tapes that borderline on well if you want me to talk about diversity and inclusion this red tape totally negates what i'm gonna say about diversity and inclusion like it literally takes it out of the park and so um navigating through that can be difficult at times but it's like i said you just find creative ways of of getting your point across and still saying it without without saying what they told you you can't say. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm glad that, that someone's navigating it. And if I can choose one person to navigate those waters and, and do the work that, that you're doing, it would be you. So <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and it truly is inspiring. Um, I want to end with this last question. And you, you, you might've touched on this already, but if anything else comes up, feel free to share. But you know, you've been on this journey and you are where you are right now, seems to be comfortable and confident in who you are. As, as you look forward, though, what's one thing that continues to inspire, continues to empower you to, to be your most authentic self? So I am going to end with this. What continues to inspire me and to move forward, I'm going to say um, is seeing women step into roles in every area. I mean, what just happened recently with uh, Kamala Harris becoming vice president. I mean, if anything, that is for every woman, every brown and black girl, for every person, right, LGBTQ who, who has been told that they can't, they can't be somebody or do something, it just inspires me because I see that women are finally taking their place. They're finally owning spaces that we weren't allowed to own before. And it inspires me because everything that I do, even with my makeup line, when I think about Warrior Queen Cosmetics is exactly that. It's just helping people to believe that they can be whoever they want to be and that they can do anything that they put their mind into and that the stars are actually not that far away you can actually shoot for it and get it and so that's that's what i want people to to leave away with 